Luke 1, 26 to 56. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favour with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she, who was said to be barren, is in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zachariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favoured? that the mother of my Lord should come to me. As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour, for he has been merciful, sorry, he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. Well, the baby is on the way. It's always an exciting time when a couple learn that uh, they are expecting their first baby. Although I suspect the expectant grannies are even more excited because, of course, they have experienced the outcome and they can look forward to enjoying that without, of course, the morning sickness and the labour pains. Well, on Sunday mornings, we've been looking at various characters in the Old Testament who, in their different ways, have been pointing to the culmination of the Old Testament, namely the nativity, the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, especially as told by Matthew and Luke. 
And what's striking is the immediate change of atmosphere. Not only are these early gospel narratives steeped in Old Testament language and culture, but they're also accompanied by the miraculous. Now, there isn't any need to be embarrassed by this. I mean, how would you know that a supernatural visitor has arrived, has entered this world, unless they did so in some supernatural way? Now, science can't disprove this, since science can only study the natural and not the supernatural. C.S. Lewis, in an essay in a, uh, essay called Religion and Science, in his book God in the Dock, recalls a conversation regarding the virgin birth. His friend says, But modern science has shown there's no such thing. Really, said Lewis. Which of the sciences? Oh, well, that, that's a matter of detail, said his friend. I can't give chapter and verse from memory. But don't you see, said Lewis, that science never could show anything of the sort? Why on earth not? Because science studies nature. And the question is whether anything besides nature exists. Anything outside. How could you find that out by studying simply nature? So if you believe in the incarnation, it's logical to believe in the virgin birth. Well, there's an outline on uh, the service sheet, and the text is on page 1026. And we begin with the announcement, or the annunciation. God sent an angel, Gabriel, to Nazareth, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph. 26 and 27. You see, after 400 years of silent waiting, suddenly God broke the silence, though not through a prophet, but through an angel. The message that Gabriel brought to Nazareth almost overwhelmed Mary, partly because she was to become a mother for the first time, even though she was still unmarried and a virgin, and partly because of the absolutely superlative threefold description that she was given of the son she was going to have. Firstly, he was to be named Jesus, indicating that he would be given a mission to save people. The name Jesus literally means God saves. The proper name Jesus, used in English, originates from the Latin form of the Greek name Jesus, a rendition of the Hebrew Yeshua, and having a variant Joshua. Joshua was a type, was one of those many people in the Old Testament who foreshadows Jesus. Joshua rescued the people of God from their endless wandering in the wilderness of Sinai and gained for them access into the promised land, Israel. Jesus will lead us away from our aimless wanderings about in this life without him to an eternal life with him, a life that can start now but will culminate in a new heaven and a new earth. Secondly, he'll be called great and would be given a further and more elaborate name, the, most, the Son of the Most High. Now, Mary wouldn't have understood that as meaning what we, when we call Jesus, Son of God, but rather he would be the Messiah, since Son of God, in the Psalms, for example, was an acknowledged messianic title. 
And thirdly, he would reign over Israel forever. Indeed, his kingdom would never come to an end. So she is to give birth to a saviour, a son, and a king. No wonder Mary was greatly troubled. It's one of the Bible's understatements, I suspect, verse 29. Even completely mystified by the angel's message and asked him what it meant. And here's Gabriel's majestic reply. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called Son of God. For nothing is impossible with God. Verses 35 to 37. We'll reflect on the meaning of the world, the meaning and the fact of the virgin birth in a minute. But meanwhile, we'll go to Mary's song. Yep, I've changed the order of um, how I'm going to explain it. So Mary's song, verse 46. My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Saviour. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. Ever since the 6th century, churches have cherished Mary's song, and they've included it in their liturgies as the Magnificat, But this raises for us, I think, an important question. How can we sing her song? We do in a version called Tell Out My Soul by Timothy Dudley Smith. But how can we sing her song? The Hebrew version has Mary chosen by God to give birth to the Messiah, the Son of God. And she is given an inspired expression of her amazement that she should have been so honoured. So how can we take her words and utter them on our lips? Isn't it inappropriate for us to do so? Well, not really, because it's been recognised throughout the last 2,000 years how Mary's response though absolutely unique in one sense, in another typifies the experience of every Christian believer. The God who has done great things for her has also lavished his grace on us. Mary herself seems to be aware of this as well because her, me and my at the beginning of her song move later into the third person. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation, verse 50. The Old Testament plan started with a person, Abraham, became a people, Israel, and now through Jesus will incorporate those from all nations as the people of God. And in this process, God has turned human values upside down. There are two main examples. Firstly, God dethrones the mighty and exalts the humble, verses 51 and 52. He did that, you recall, with Pharaoh of Egypt, with Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, and in both cases, he rescued Israel from their exiles. He still does it today in our experience, in your experience and my experience our experience of salvation. It is the only way in. 
Only if we get on our knees beside the penitent will God exhort us with his accepting forgiveness. If you see a broadcast from Bethlehem this Christmas, look out for the door at the entrance to the Church of the Holy Nativity. It is only about four foot high. It is meant to make us stoop as we enter it. Only the penitent man shall enter. Secondly, God dismisses the rich and he feeds the hungry, verse 53. Mary was hungry. She knew from the Old Testament that one day God's kingdom would come and she was longing for that day just like others were, just like the old man Simeon, just like the prophetess Anna, and just like the Magi. Hunger is still an indispensable condition for spiritual blessing, while complacent self-satisfaction is its greatest enemy. If we want to inherit Mary's blessings, we must display Mary's qualities, especially of humility and hunger. C.S. Lewis called pride the great sin. Every believer should read that chapter in Mere Christianity. There Lewis said, according to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Admittedly, humility and the humbling of oneself is out of fashion in today's world and seems unappealing to most of us. However, as Jonathan Edwards in the 18th century said, we must view humility as one of the most essential things that characterizes true Christianity. Chuck Coulson served as special counsel to President Richard Nixon from 1969 to 1973. At that, that was the time of the Watergate conspiracy, and Coulson served a seven-month prison sentence for obstructing justice. Through that experience, he became a Christian, but not before this White House worker was deeply humbled. When in prison, he was assigned to work in the laundry. It was ferociously hot in summer, he wrote, and his job involved, quote, endless sorting of sweated, sweat-soaked underwear and brown work uniforms. My assignment to the laundry was also, I'm convinced, another step in my ego-busting process. There was a certain lesson in humility and washing the clothes of other people, not too far removed from washing their feet. And now the virgin birth. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the Most High will overshadow you so that the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Verse 35. Now, virgin birth is, in one sense, a misleading expression, suggesting there was something unusual about Jesus' birth, where, in fact, his birth was entirely natural and normal. So much so that uh, 
Mary's NCT class would have been really proud of her. Very good. Straight textbook stuff, as it should be. And they'd have talked about it endlessly. It was his conception, of course, which was abnormal. In fact, it was supernatural, for he was conceived by the operation of the Holy Spirit without the, cooper um, without the cooperation of a human father. And Matthew and Luke are clear in their affirmation that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. And it's clear that they are writing prose and not poetry, that they are writing history and not myth. Well, you might ask, well, why didn't Mark and John include it in theirs? Well, it may well be that it's because they chose to start Jesus' ministry, his public ministry, when Jesus started his public ministry, when he was about 30, just after John the Baptist had started uh, baptising and preaching the need to the religious to repent. But their silence about his birth no more means that they did not believe in it than their silence about his childhood means that they thought he didn't have one. The important point is that the only two evangelists who record his birth both declare that he was born of a virgin. So if it happened, what did it mean? And we move from historicity to significance. It does matter. The angel's annunciation was in two stages. The first, in verses 31 to 33, stressed the continuity that Mary's child would enjoy with the past because she would bear him and he would occupy the throne of his father David. That is, he would inherit from his mother both his humanity and his title to the messianic kingdom. And the second section in verse 35 stressed the discontinuity between the child and the past because the Holy Spirit would come upon Mary and the creative power of God would overshadow her so that her child would be unique, sinless, the Holy One, the Son of God. In this way, what was announced to the Virgin Mary was her son's humanity and messiahship derived from her, while his sinlessness and his deity would be derived from the Holy Spirit. As a result, the virgin birth, um, Jesus was simultaneously Mary's son and God's son, both human and divine. And finally, what was her response? Well, it's one of submission. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Verse 38. The first and most indisputable fact about the birth of Jesus, wrote Bishop John Robinson, is that it occurred out of wedlock. The one option for which there's no evidence is that Jesus was the lawful son of Joseph and Mary. The only choice open to us is between a virgin birth and an illegitimate birth. Back in the 1960s, he went for the latter option. But rumours of Jesus' possible illegitimacy were being spread 
during his public ministry in an attempt to discredit him. For example, when he declared that certain unbelieving Jews had not Abraham, but the devil as their father, they retorted, we are not illegitimate children, which sounds like an innuendo that he was. You'll find it in John 8, 41. Now these rumours of Jesus' illegitimacy persisted long after his death. In the Jewish Talmud, they became explicit. In the third century, the Christian scholar Origen had to answer the jibe of the critic uh, Celsus that uh, Joseph turned Mary out of his home because she had committed adultery with a Roman soldier named Panthera. But as one commentator observed, how could these hints and slanders had, have arisen unless it was known that Mary was already pregnant when Joseph married her? Distasteful as this gossip is, he writes, it is corroborative evidence of a virgin birth. Now Mary's response to the angelic announcement was admirable. I am the Lord's servant. May you be to me as you have said. Verse 38. Once God's purpose and method had been explained to her, she didn't balk. She was entirely at God's disposal. She expressed her total willingness to be the virgin mother of the Son of God. Of course, it was an enormous privilege for her. The mighty one has done great things, she said, verse 49. Yet it was an awesome and costly responsibility. It involved a readiness to become pregnant before she was married and so expose herself to the shame and suffering of being thought both immoral and irresponsible. The humility and courage of Mary in submitting to the virgin birth stands out in contrast to the attitudes of critics like that 1960s bishop who deny it. She surrendered her reputation to God's will. And for us too, what matters is that we allow God to be God and to do things his way, even if we risk losing our reputation or our good name. It is though, of course, far better to be in with God than in with our followers, if we have them, on Twitter or our likes on Facebook or even our friends and family in reality. So in conclusion, to use the expression from the world of education and training, what are the learning outcomes from this notification that a very special, unique baby, one like no other, is on the way, and his mother's response? I think there is at least two, and they are that God speaks and God acts. God speaks. He's been silent for 400 years. He's been waiting for them to get in a position whereby they are ready to despair of their own efforts and are on the lookout to turn back to him. But now he speaks 
and he speaks of his people's rescue. It is for their benefit so that they might serve him and his purposes by living holy and righteous lives. And their rescue will demonstrate that God is a God who keeps his promises. Littered throughout the Old Testament, they are now coming to fulfilment. And he acts through the miraculous conception of two babies, Jesus and John the Baptist, but in slightly different ways. Jesus, born by miraculous conception, embracing both human and divine parentage, and John, by the miraculous conception through two human beings who had been childless, but in old age became parents. What human beings could not do, God did. Jesus will be God's Messiah, his son, the one through whom God will rescue his people and fulfill his promises, and John will be God's promised messenger. He is born first because he has been sent to prepare the way for Jesus. And in all of this, we realise that the Son of God would become man to enable men to become sons of God. And next Sunday, we'll see how that's possible. Let's pray. Almighty God, give us grace to cast away the works of darkness and to put on the armour of light, now in the time of this mortal life, in which your Son, Jesus Christ, came to us in great humility, so that on the last day, when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge the living and the dead, we may rise to the life immortal through him who is alive and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. <laughs>